0: Hello and welcome to the Wheel of Crab Podcast, the podcast where two ladies play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Also, this podcast does cover topics of sensitive nature, and as such, listener discretion is advised.
1: Hello, 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 and welcome to... Back to the Wheel of Crime podcast. My
0: name is Jen, and I am Emily. (laughs) Here in the voice and the flesh and the person, (laughs) all of the things, all of the things. That was a good start. I did the same thing that we did last time, where I started with the disclaimer, and immediately my brain was like, "Yes, you're introducing yourself," and I was like, "Nope, not yet." (laughs) That's not what we're doing here, Brain. Scrap that fuck me up. Yep, we got different plans. <laughs> but yes, uh, my name is Emily. Uh, and welcome to another episode of the Wheelcran podcast. Um any updates from this last week you want to share, Jenna?
1: Not really. <laughs> I <laughs> last weekend I went to my brother's wedding in Bath. It was ooh, very really beautiful. Ooh. Very nice day out.
0: I got a wicked sunburn. All is good. (laughs) Beautiful. Love sunburns. My top ten favorite things for sure.
1: Yeah, same. Love that for me. Uh, Other than that, nothing too much. I'm working away this week. I have like literally three grants due the day that we are recording this. Yeah. So that is so fun for me.
0: I love that for me. Yes, that sounds super fantastic. Um, at least, like, uh, you're busy. I uh, I don't really know what to say to that one. (laughs) Yes. What about you, (laughs) Uh, um, well, I am still sick, uh, as I'm not sure if our listeners can tell. I've had my sinus issues still. We're on week two, uh, of Mm. this one, uh, and then, you know, how it goes. I'll be better for three days and then I'll be sick again. So, that's fun. And then, um... I went to a Greta Van Fleet concert on Friday last week. That was lots of fun. Love those guys. Uh, And then I've just been working, working, and working. I work the day that we record. I will be working the day after we record. And probably the day after that one, too. That's just how it is. It do be like that
1: for some reason. I feel like we both just need to retire
0: that would is that be an option. That would be ideal. However, I don't know if my husband would necessarily allow that for me. <laughs> uh
1: yeah. I have a feeling that your husband would not. Mine would gladly let me retire.
0: Yeah, no, mine is of the of the idea that you should only retire when you die. So he himself will not be retiring, and I think by proxy that means that I too will be kept busy forever. Which as good as that is for some. In other ways, I too would like (laughs) to just retire. But that being said, we will see what the future holds. But yeah, no, um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else kind of relevant to uh, podcasting things this week. But honestly, I really have nothing. Uh, This is another one of those weeks where I'm not uh, super interesting whatsoever and just tired and sick and tired of being sick.
1: There we go. I uh, started planning out our October episodes earlier, and I am very excited for spooky episodes. Yes, it
0: has taken way too long to get back in a spooky season. Uh, I think it's probably for sure one of Jenna, if not Jen and I's favorite month of the year. Uh, so I'm just stoked to be getting kind of into the festivities of it all. It's taken too long. Uh, Yeah, it's true. I'm a fall girl. Pumpkin Spice is already back at Starbucks, which is hella delicious. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'm a sweater person. I love them. So I will be happy to not be at plus 30 anymore. I would be content Mm -hmm. with, like, plus 20 still, at least for a little bit. But I want to be able to have some, like, cooler days where I can, like... Wear a sweater and some cute boots and, like, go out for a walk where the leaves are all turning and it's all nice and pretty outside. Ugh, I'm so pumped for that. (gasps) Ah! It's gonna be good. Um, but on that note, should we start with our wheel of questions? Yes, take it away, Em.
1: Have you ever been blamed for something you didn't
0: do? Oh, yeah. Loads of times. All the time. I am one of six children. I think, like, (laughs) it was a miracle if there wasn't a day that went by where I wasn't blamed for something that I didn't do. It's true.
1: Yeah, I think my... The time that I was blamed for something that I uh, appreciated the least was... Because I was one of three kids. Yeah. So... My mom had made banana bread one time, and literally, I went to school, and I was like, when I get home, I'm having me a slice of that banana bread. I was so hype. Mm -hmm. And my mom made two, usually. She made one with chocolate chips and one with walnuts. And I did not like walnuts as a kid. I was hyped for the chocolate chip one specifically. Oh, yeah. And when I got home, there was not a single slice of the chocolate chip one left. It was gone. And... I got blamed for it. They're like, you ate all of it? And I'm like, I wasn't even here. I didn't even get one slice. Who do you think it was? Because I think I know who it was. I don't know. I think it was
0: a a group effort, but I'm Mm. pissed. A group effort? I'm putting all of my tokens on your brother. I I just know how he is. He would have fed half of them to his piranha tank and he ate the other half.
1: He was the one who blamed me. He was pointing so many fingers at me that it had to be him.
0: That's what I'm saying, right? But, uh, no, it's funny that you say that there is, like, a very specific memory that you have, because I also have one that's not as, like, uh, let's say polite as stolen banana bread. Um... <laughs> <laughs> My family uh, goes out to visit my granny on one of the islands in British Columbia uh, occasionally. And when we were kids, um, we would go out there and we had, like, a very strict rule list because they have, like, a lot of, like, rules around water usage out there. So while she was there, uh, she would tell us all the time, like, hey, you are not allowed to... um, you're not allowed to use the upstairs toilet, uh, if you're going number two, you have to use the downstairs one because of how the plumbing works, and so all those older kids knew that, but I remember, like, we got to to her house, and, like, everybody was just flooding the bathrooms, right, and so I'm like, okay, I just Mm -hmm. really have to pee. That is, like, my one big thing, and I remember at the time that I was getting over, like, a cold or something, so I was very, like, just mucusy, so... This is going to sound revolting, and I am so sorry, everyone. (laughs) So I, like, went to the upstairs toilet because I was like, hey, I know that I only have to pee. Like, I've, I've been coached on this. We know what's happening here. But I get in there, and I go pee, and I'm, like, trying to, like, decongest my nose. So obviously I've, like, spat phlegm into there as well, just, you know... Real cute shit that you don't want anybody else seeing. So (laughs) then I'm trying to flush it, and nothing is flushing. And I've had, like, for sure, probably three of my other siblings use this toilet before me. So I'm like, I do not understand what's going on. And then it starts to flood. And all of a sudden, every adult in there, my uncle, my granny, both of my parents, are all shoved into this bathroom, staring at this toilet that is now full of my pee and boogers. And it is flooding everywhere and they just look at me and they're like what did we tell you about shitting in the toilet and i'm like i didn't do it and they for sure they were like yeah just don't go and poop in the toilet upstairs like emily did and i'm like it wasn't me and i still like still when people bring it up, they're like yeah we well, remember when emily flooded the toilet at granny's house because she took a shit in the upstairs toilet i'm like hey i didn't do it but i didn't even want to be in there because everybody was like witnessing my boogers In this toilet that was now flooding. And I was like, I just want to die.
1: (laughs) I just wish I could sink
0: through the floor and run away into the ocean and never come back. But I do- I think, though, a part of the issue was, like, I was, like, 12 or 13 at the time. So it's all- life is already embarrassing. And at that point- Yeah. And they really did think that it was me who did it. And I have no idea who it was, but I know it was one of the three who used the toilet before me. Because whoever had just been in there before me was the person who plugged the toilet. What a little hoe! I know, and they never fessed up to it. Never fessed up to it, and I'm like, you all are rotten little children. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. It was so bad, and the fact that they still talk about it, they still are like, yeah, Emily's not going to listening to rules. Remember that one time at Granny's house? And I'm like, hey, how many times do I have to say that wasn't me? If it was me, I would tell you because it so much time has gone past that I do not give a shit anymore. Literally. <laughs> but like still, and I'm like, I apparently don't have a case until one of them stands forward one day and they're like, ha, ha remember when Emily got blamed for what I did, and I'll be like, It was you.
1: Literally, I I understand how you feel because I s they still bring up the banana bread to this day. <laughs> It's like they literally it's, fuck all of them. See,
0: what is the deal though? Is it just that they're so convinced it was you, and that they're still waiting for you to fess up? And now it's fun now because I think that's what my family's thing is: is that for them it's funny now. They don't understand like my like preteen embarrassment around the whole situation. They just think it's funny that I'm I don't like confess to it, right? And I'm like, well, yeah. why do I confess to something I didn't even do?
1: What's the point of that? I feel like that my family is in a very similar boat where they're like, haha, remember when you ate all the banana bread? And I'm like, I swear to God, I did not eat the banana bread. And they're like, yeah, right. It was definitely you. <laughs> funny.
0: Not funny. ha. <laughs> funny. I'm going to go drown myself in the ocean. <laughs> same i'll be joining you like literally i can't even begin to tell you how badly jen i just wanted to like swim away because obviously i didn't have like a license or anything i was trapped there i was like i don't even want to talk to you people this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me (laughs) i fully understand but let's spin
1: for our next question (laughs) did you get in trouble a lot as a kid
0: oh yeah all the time (laughs) like uh how do I phrase this? I'm the first one and for a period of time there was almost nothing that I could do that was the right thing. So I used to get in trouble literally every day of my life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I I was the opposite. I was the youngest, so I feel like I was really testing my boundaries. Oh, yeah, I could see that.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, my mom only caught you sneaking into your own house multiple times, and then she was like, I don't know how I feel about you hanging out with that Jenny girl. Since now, she's changed her tune, but. (laughs) You know
1: what? Sometimes you forget your keys at home, and you just gotta sneak back in when you get home.
0: These do be facts. They do be facts. That's all I got. I can't even think of, like, a particular time of, like, getting in trouble, because it happens so often, but yeah. That's all
1: I got. I got no fun stories to share on that one. Me either. They're all too traumatizing, so let's <laughs> spin for our next
0: question. Yeah, we've, we're blocking them out.
1: What is your favorite flower?
0: Mm, my favorite flower? Yeah. I feel like it's... There's lots of good flowers. Uh,
1: <laughs> Agreed. Lots of great flowers. They all smell... Or most of them smell wonderful.
0: Uh I would actually say that I think one of my favorites are tulips. I've always really liked tulips. Tulips are great. That's yeah. my mom's favorite flower. Yeah. Or um because uh where we grew up, I do also really like lilacs because there was always like 5 million lilac bushes around our houses.
1: That's a good one. I'm a big fan of peonies.
0: Peonies? Yes. Have, you, have you seen that video? It's like a meme video that was trending online where it's like, Look what you've done to my peonies! They're marigolds! By God, she's right. They are marigolds. I may not know my flowers, but I know a bitch when I see one. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's but on- I love the recreation. That was wonderful. Um. And that's the only thing I can think about whenever I hear the word
1: marigolds. But they are really pretty. I do like them. Yes. Excellent. Yes. I know what your least
0: favorite flower
1: is because yeah, flower- I have the
0: same least favorite flower. I definitely think we've talked about it before too. Uh, petunias can rot in hell. Um, fuck petunias. <laughs> fuck them all. And it's hilarious too because I have uh, obviously relatives who are big into gardening, and I remember them talking about building flower beds. I, I, it was for sure. I think earlier this year, and I was like, "Oh God, the last thing I'm ever going to do is put fucking petunias in my flower beds." They all like look to me as if like I'd said like. You know, like, um, I can't even, like, think about what I'm trying to refer to. But it was, like, almost, like, aghast and horror and, like, and, like, shocked. And I was, like, why would I like the stickiest flower on the entire planet that doesn't smell like anything? And it's, like, and they're ugly. They look like tiny trumpets. Why would
1: I want that? Literally, I can't think of a single good thing about petunias other
0: than that they're cheap. Exactly. And my mom was like, uh, cause I, I've talked about this with her before too. She was like, they make a good filler flower. And I'm like, I don't care. I no. will put pansies in. If I have an option, I am not picking petunias. They can, no more.
1: I would rather fill my garden with dandelions than fucking petunias.
0: I would literally, that's the thing. I would literally rather have a garden that was just straight up weeds and that's it, and grass, then fill it full of petunias. Hate them. They're the worst things ever. Hate them with
1: my whole
0: soul. And they don't even come back. They're annual. So then I'm like, you have to go through the effort every year of buying a bunch of fucking petunias, planting them, and then they don't even come back the next year. What's the point? I'll never understand it. They're the worst. They are definitely But the worst. let's spin for our next question.
1: Yes. What was your favorite activity to do after school as a kid? See, mine was sitting with Emily on the corner, because we lived two houses down from each other, and we would sit on the corner right in front of her house and literally talk for about four hours, and we
0: would usually be drinking Slurpees, and then we would part our ways. Yep. Just just talking and gossiping and clopping our, our way up and down the street. I, know, I remember that, too. I always thought that was a lot of fun. I'm trying to think, like, usually after that, I feel like I would go inside and I was allowed to play video games for an hour, so I would usually do that. Or read. I was really big into reading for a long time. But other than mm-hmm. that, I don't think I really did much else. Us sitting outside really took up most of my day, actually.
1: <laughs> it's
0: true. We would talk for literally
1: hours. I think I would go home, and it'd usually be about dinner time. And then I would do my
0: homework and
1: chill for a bit after that.
0: Yeah, basically. So nothing too crazy. I do remember (laughs) you and I going through a garbage bag of donation clothes, though, once and having a fashion show in the middle of the street. I'm sure our neighbors thought we were very entertaining. I remember that too. That was such a good day. I remember that
1: as like a monumental like good day because it was right at the end of the school year too. Mm. So we were just, we were living our best lives.
0: Oh yeah. Like I remember putting on, it was like, I was wearing like an Air Apostle t-shirt and I like put on some kind of like 2000s velvet zip up hoodie and some like shoes and we were like doing a little fashion walk up and down the sidewalk.
1: It's so cute. I still have those photos because I, I was a big picture taker in middle school.
0: Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. It was know, very well I, I documented. I it in my mind still. <laughs> I'll have to send you those pictures because... Whew. Mm, I think that day was probably the last day I also ever had a Slurpee as well because pretty much immediately after that they started giving me headaches. Mm. And then we switched what to Polar shame. Pops, which I'm not sure are much better. Probably not. Probably just as much sugar. definitely. Um, I'm trying to think. There was something else that crossed my mind, but, oh well. But yeah, I think that wraps up our wheel of questions, though. So, here's my guess. I think that there was a child who got in trouble for picking his mom's favorite flowers after school one day. And then he got thrown in jail. The end. <laughs> the end. Uh your story is
1: a lot nicer than the one I'm about to tell you. But you're you've got some of the elements right there.
0: We'll uh we'll compare my guests to your story as banana bread is to blocked toilets. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> um I actually have a it's actually a very sad story that I have no. for you today. So are you gonna make me cry? Uh, maybe. We'll see. Okay. Okay. Take it away. I'll just get right into it. Our crime is set in the year 1944. Now, this was right in the midst of World War II, but our story takes place in a small, segregated mill town called Alcalo, South Carolina, where white and black people were separated by railroad tracks. Mm. And the community of Alkaloo in Klandurin County, it was a bustling area, home to tight-knit communities, and the town's lumber mill was thriving. Many of the folks in town would have described this town as a safe place where neighbors trusted one another, doors were never locked, and strangers were welcomed with open arms. The kind of place where neighbors borrowed cups of flour from one another and shit like that.
0: Okay, okay. Sounds pleasant. So, now that you have the setting, let's get
1: into it. Now, in this town lived a 14-year-old boy named George Stinney Jr. George was born on October 21st, 1929 in Pinewood, South Carolina. George lived with his parents, two sisters, and two brothers in a humble three-room company house reserved for black families and george's dad like many others in the community worked for the lumber mill in town george's two younger sisters were named catherine who was 10 and amy who was 8 and he also had a brother named charles who was 12 and an older half brother named john who was 17 george was 5 foot 1 and weighed about 95 pounds at the time George's parents said that he loved drawing and he was an excellent little artist in the making. And we unfortunately don't know too much else about George and his family. I will say because it's relevant and important to our story that George and his family were black. So the day that everything changed for George was March 23rd, 1944. And on this particular day, Betty June Binnaker, who was 11, and Mary Emma Thames, who was 8, were riding their bicycles and decided to go looking for wildflowers. For context, both of these young girls were white and came from white families in the community, because it's relevant. (laughs) unfortunately.
0: Okay, gotcha.
1: While the girls were out riding their bikes, they ran into George and his little sister, who were out walking their family cow named Lizzie, which I love that for them.
0: You Did you say family cow? Family cow, yes. Okay, that's really sweet. I love that. I wish I had a family cow. Right? (laughs) to take for walks?
1: The girls stopped and asked George and Amy if they knew where to find May Pops, which are the yellow edible fruit of passion flowers. Amy said that they didn't know where to find May Pops and the girls continued riding their bikes and they both went about their business. That was reportedly the last time the girls were seen alive because that night Mary and Betty never returned home. Their families became worried and it prompted hundreds of Alcalu residents, including George's father, to come together and search for the missing girls. At some point during the search, George reportedly acknowledged seeing the girls earlier in the day and quickly became a suspect in the case. Robert Ridgway, a local teen, says that his father was a part of the search and they spent hours looking for the girls. He said, quote, They told people in the search that that if they were found, they would blow the whistle at the mill. One minute till seven the next morning, the mill whistle went off. It was a long, long blast. Just one day after the girls vanished, a group of lumbermen found the bodies in a water-filled ditch. Dr. Asbury Cecil Bozard examined their bodies. There was no clear sign of a struggle, but both girls had met violent deaths involving multiple head injuries. Mary had a hole going straight through her forehead into her skull, along with a two-inch cut above her right eyebrow. Meanwhile, Betty had suffered at least seven blows to the head. It was later noted that the back of her skull was, quote, Nothing but a mass of crushed bones. So, very sad.
0: Very violent death. This is intensely destructive. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: it is. You would have to be a very strong person to cause that kind of damage.
0: Well, strong and also violent. Like, nobody goes to that extent unless there's some sort of anger or rage also involved
1: you would think. So, Dr. Bozard concluded that Mary and Betty had wounds that were likely caused by a, quote, round instrument about the size of a head of a hammer. Old reports indicated that a railroad spike was used as the murder weapon, and other reports indicated a large blunt iron was used. A rumor floated around town that the girls had made a stop at a prominent white family's home the same day of their murder, but this was never confirmed. And uh, we'll get into that later because it's a bit of a um, a bit of a thing. So there's some kind of fishy
0: um, rumor going around that nobody can prove. Okay.
1: Yeah, police certainly didn't seem to be looking for a white uh, for a white killer, and Clarendon County law enforcement were instead focused on George. So one of the arresting officers named S. J. Pratt said that they questioned an elderly black man in the case if he might have known who could have been mean enough to do this? Apparently that man automatically said George Stinney. According to SJ, that's when the police went down to George's house where he allegedly heard George and his family discussing the murders outside of an open window. Because discussing major town news is apparently illegal and makes you guilty of murder, you know.
0: Well, I know lots of people who should be in jail then.
1: Like, it's- A small town where not a lot happens, and they've never had a murder before. So, you know, it might be logical that people, especially people who are helping with the search, might talk about it. But yeah, clearly, only if you're guilty.
0: Mm, yes, of course.
1: So, SJ placed George and his half-brother, John, in separate rooms and questioned them individually. George was handcuffed and interrogated for hours in a small room without his parents, an attorney, or any witnesses. It was then that George allegedly confessed to the murders and told police exactly what happened. Police claimed that George confessed to murder- murdering Betty and Mary after his plan to have sex with one of the girls failed. His brother, John, apparently also told police the same story that George committed the crime. And SJ asked George, quote, Can you show me the murder weapon? And S.J. said that George led him to the low end of the field where the bodies were found. He walked up and reached down twice, and on the second time he reached down, he pulled up an iron spike and gave it to him. George was then arrested and charged with their murders. Another officer on the case named H.S. Newman wrote in a handwritten statement, quote, I arrested a boy by the name of George Stinney. He then made a confession and told me where to find a piece of iron about 15 inches long. He said he put it in a ditch about six feet from the bicycle. Newman refused to reveal where George was detained as rumors of a lynching spread throughout the town. Not even his parents knew where he was as his trial quickly approached. According to one of George's sisters, their father was fired from his job at the lumber mill and feared for the safety of his family, so they were forced to move from Alclue. His sister also recalled that his parents were also not allowed to see or speak to George prior to the trial or any time after. On April 24, 1944, which was one month after the murders, George stood trial for the crimes at the Clarendon County Courthouse. At the time, 14 was considered the age of responsibility and George was believed to be responsible for the murders. So George was given a court-appointed attorney named Charles Plowden who did little to nothing to defend his client. During the two-hour trial, George's attorney Charles failed to call any witnesses to the stand, present any evidence that would cast doubt on the prosecution case, and the most significant piece of evidence presented against George was his alleged confession, But there was also no written record of him admitting to the murders, and by the time of his trial, George hadn't seen his parents in weeks, and they were too afraid of getting attacked by a white mob to come to the courthouse. So, 14-year-old George was there alone and surrounded by strangers, and there were up to 1,500 spectators in the
0: courtroom that day, all angry, all thinking he's guilty. Basically They have been interrogating a 14-year-old, driving these different confessions out of him, not even at the same time, but after hours and hours of him being in there. And now they've got some kind of mob that's obsessed with this idea of this 14-year-old child being responsible for this.
1: Yep. 14-year-old child who's 95 pounds
0: and committed those brutal... Brutal murders. Literally, what leg do you have to stand on? Like, a 95 pound, 14... Was he 13 or 14? I know I just said it, but... 14. Yeah, 14 year old does not have the strength to do that. That's just not possible. Nope. (laughs) So, the trial was
1: very brief. Taking the all-white jury about 10 minutes
0: to come back with a guilty
1: verdict... With no recommendation for mercy.
0: Yeah, I don't love that either. It should not take less than an hour to decide somebody's fate, especially if they're 14 years old and murder is involved. Ten fucking minutes. That's ridiculous. They see this is another one of those things where like you tell me a story and I'm like, they could have done so much more by just having a different fucking jury. That could actually look and be like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this?
1: Literally. And they're like, yeah, no mercy. Literally the worst sentence possible, please. Yeah. So, George was sentenced to die by electrocution. However, George's execution was not without protest. In South Carolina, organizers for both white and black minstrels unions petitioned Governor olin johnson to grant george clemency based on his young age meanwhile hundreds of letters and telegrams poured into the governor's office begging him to show mercy to george george's supporters appealed with everything from the basic idea of fairness to the concept of christian justice but in the end none of it was enough to save him right before george was electrocuted Our our pal S.J. Pratt, one of the arresting officers, went to the penitentiary and reportedly asked George if he knew why he was here. Now, according to S.J., this is how the conversation allegedly went. George replied, yes, he knew why he was there. And S.J. asked him, did you commit the crime? Apparently, George said, yes, sir. And S.J. asked, did anyone make you say anything you didn't want to say? And George said, no, sir. S.J. then asked the boy if he knew he was about to die. George said, yes, sir. And then S.J. said, goodbye, George. And George said, goodbye, Sheriff. On June 16th, 1944, George was put to death two months after the trial, which was 83 days after the murders. So 83 days after the murders takes place, he has been tried, convicted, and now is about to be executed.
0: Is there not, like, a single person in this town that's like, yeah, this feels weird. Why are we doing this?
1: I mean, there probably was, but a lot of them are probably afraid of being attacked by a white mob who made threats of lynching George's family. Yeah. (sighs) All right. Yeah. So, and what year did you say this was? 1944.
0: Awesome. Okay. Okay.
1: So, George became the youngest person ever to be electrocuted in the United States. He walked into the execution chamber at the South Carolina Penitentiary in Columbia with a Bible tucked under his arm. Mary Emma Thames' father was in attendance for the execution, so she was one of the girls that died. He weighed in just at 95 pounds and was dressed in a loose fitting striped jun- jumpsuit. Strapped into an adult-sized electric chair, he was so small that the state electrician struggled to adjust an electrode to his right leg. An assistant captain asked George if he had any last words. George replied, no, sir. The prison doctor prodded, do you want to say anything about what you did? Again, George replied, no, sir. A mask that was too big for him was placed over his face, and his last words ended up being, I can't breathe, officer. When the officials turned on the switch, 2,400 volts surged through George's body, causing the mask to slip off. His eyes were wide and teary, and saliva was emanating from his mouth for all of the witnesses in the room to see. After two more jolts of electricity, it was over, and George was pronounced dead shortly thereafter.
0: I have no words. Like, obviously anger. But that's not a word that's a feeling. It's also a word, I guess. But, like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around how he obviously either did not understand what he was doing. Or somebody told him that if he didn't confess to it, something would happen to his family. Like, there's just something not right going on here. Well, obviously the whole thing. But, like, additionally. And it makes me so grouchy hearing about this kind of stuff. Because you're like... What a miscarriage of justice, just for the sake of making a particular group of people happy for some fucking reason. Yep. So, let me tell you about the aftermath. Oh boy,
1: alright. In 2004, George Frierson, a local historian who grew up in Elklo, started researching the case after reading a newspaper article about it. His work gained attention of South Carolina lawyers Steve McKenzie and Matt Bergs. In addition, Ray Brown, attorney James Moon, and others contributed countless hours of research and review of historical documents and found witnesses and evidence to assist exonerating George. Among those who aided in the case were the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project in Northeastern University School of Law, which filed an an amicus brief with the court in 2014. George Frierson and the pro bono lawyers first sought relief with the Pardon and Parole Board of South Carolina. Steve and Matt, along with attorney Ray Chandler, representing George's family, filed a motion for a new trial on October 25th, 2013. George Frierson and the pro bono lawyers said in interviews that, quote, "...if we can't get the case reopened, then we have to go to the judge and say there wasn't any reason to convict this child." there was no evidence to present to the jury there was no transcript there was no transcript this case needs to be reopened this is an injustice that needs to be righted i'm pretty optimistic that if we can get witnesses we need to come forward we will be successful in court We hopefully have a witness that's going to say that's non-family and non-relative witness who is going to be able to tie this all in and say that we were basically an alibi witness. They were with Mr. Stinney and this did not occur. George Frierson also said that, quote, There has been a person that has been named as being the culprit who is now deceased. And it was said by the family that there was a deathbed confession, George Frierson said that the rumored culprit came from a well-known, prominent, white family in the community, and member or members of that family had served on the initial coroner's inquest jury, which had recommended that George be prosecuted. So,
0: to summarize, some asshole on their deathbed was like, actually, remember that 14-year-old we killed? Yeah, actually, it was so-and-so from our family who, at the time, was a contributor on the case and assisted in pointing blame away from their direction so they didn't have to suffer the consequences.
1: From my understanding, the person who killed the two girls
0: on his deathbed
1: confessed to killing them. And his family knew because... I'm going to get into this a little bit in a minute here, but his family basically already knew that he probably had something to do with this and were able to get involved from the beginning of when the girls were found and point the finger at George to absolve this individual from any responsibility. The woman was too stunned to speak.
0: Literally. That's like, <laughs> first, obviously there's the horrendous, brutal murder of, it was it was two girls, right? Like, I'm not mistaken when I'm, like, thinking that. It wasn't just one. It was two girls. Yeah. Betty and Mary. Yeah, of two girls. And then on top of that, you have the person who actually did it gets to suffer no consequences because now they are dead. And then at the same time, the family knew... All those years. That is just such a compounded crime. And would you not feel guilty? I don't know
1: how you couldn't. Um... So, in one of the court briefs, the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project said there is compelling evidence that George Stinney was innocent of the crimes of which he was executed in 1944. The it's prosecutor shocking. relied almost exclusively on one piece of evidence to obtain a conviction in this capital case, the unrecorded and unsigned confession of a 14-year-old who was deprived of counsel parental guidance and whose defense lawyer shockingly failed to call uh, exculpating witnesses or preserve his right of appeal new evidence in the court hearing in january 2015 sorry january 2014 included testimony by stinney's siblings that he was with them at the time of the murders in addition an affidavit was introduced from the referendum. Er Reverend Francis Baston who found the girls and pulled them from the water-filled ditch. In his statement, he recalled there was not much blood in or around the ditch suggesting that they may have been killed elsewhere and moved. Rather than approving a new trial on December 16th, 2014, Circuit Court Judge Carmen Mullen vacated Steiny's conviction. She ruled that he had not received a fair trial and as he was not effectively defended and his Sixth Amendment rights had been violated. The ruling was a rare use of a legal remedy of Corman Nobis, and Judge Mullen ruled that his confession was likely coerced and thus un- inadmissible. His siblings claimed that his confession was, in fact, coerced and that he had an alibi. At the time of the murders, he was with his sister Amy watching the family cow, Lizzie, love her, and they also noted that the man, that a man named Wilford Johnny Hunter, who claimed to be George's cellmate in prison, said that George denied murdering Betty and Mary. He said, quote, Johnny, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. He said, why would they kill me for something I didn't do? After months of consideration, on December 17th, 2014, Judge Carmen T. Mullen vacated his murder conviction calling the death sentence a great and fundamental injustice. George, George's siblings were overjoyed to learn that their brother was exonerated after 70 years, appreciating that they were still uh, alive when it happened. His sister Catherine said, quote, "'It was just like a cloud moved away. When we got the news, we were sitting with friends. I threw my hands up and said, "'Thank you, Jesus. Someone had to be listening. "'It's what we wanted all these years.'" Family members of both Betty Bickner and Mary Thames expressed disappointment at the, col- at the court's ruling, however. They said that although they acknowledged George's execution at the age of 14 is controversial, they never doubted his guilt. Betty's niece, Frankie Billy Deitch, said that she and her family have extensively researched the case and argues that it had nothing to do with the race and how people, quote, who just read these articles in a newspaper don't know the truth. So Frankie's husband once owned a barbershop inside at Berkeley Motel in Monk's Corner before it was demolished to make way for a Walgreens that now is there today. And a man by the name of SJ Pratt, who was one of her husband's frequent customers. So, according to Frankie, there was a movie named Carolina Skeletons that was released in 1991, and it was loosely based on George's case. After this movie came out, SJ told Frankie's husband that there had been, that he was one of the arresting officers, and that's when Frankie's husband informed SJ that his wife was actually the niece of uh, Mary. Frankie says that S.J. then sought her out, and he looked her dead in the eyes and said, quote, don't you ever believe that boy didn't kill your aunt because from the, because from the time I became involved from the whole chain of events, there was not one link broken. The family members of Mary and Betty also contend that the claims of a, the deathbed confession from an individual confessing to the girl's murder has never been substantiated, but Let's dive a little deeper into that anyways. So, this is kind of confusing because there's a lot of people named George in this situation. (laughs) Not the direction I thought we were taking, but. Yes. So, our main guy, George, who was unfortunately executed, he will be George. Everyone else, I'm going to say, call them by their last name to make things simpler. Okay. Sounds good. So, George Burke Jr. is the son of a wealthy white businessman named George Burke Sr. Now, Burke Jr. has been the subject of speculation as a possible suspect in the murders. Burke Jr. died in 1947 at the age of 29, and George Stinney's mother had worked for the Burke family for a brief period. George's sister recalled that her mother had once come home saying that Burke Sr. had made advances to her and their father told their mother to not go back. George's sister claimed to have heard that the Burke boys had framed George because their mother didn't want to give it up. And Burke Sr. conducted an initial search of the girls and was the owner of the territory behind Greenhill Baptist Church where their bodies were found. He was also the foreman of the grand jury that indicted George and had been accused of helping steer the blame off of his son onto George. Two elderly women in Alcalo recalled that Burke Jr. was known as a womanizer and for committing theft and getting away with it. According to Sonia Ade Williamson, a white Alcalo resident investigating the case who became close to George's sisters, Burke's junior son, Wayne Burke, told her that his grandmother had told him that his father had picked up the girls in his lumber truck by his grandmother's house the day of the girls' murders. In 2017, Wayne Burke denied saying that he had said that and he remained convinced of George's guilt. George's sister had previously recalled that after the two girls had asked about the maypop flowers, a lumber truck drove down the road, and nobody else has stated that Burke Jr. had given the girls a ride. Lawyers of the Stinney family have stated that there have been rumors of a deathbed confession to the murders by a member of the prominent family, however, it's never been proven.
0: And that's my story for you today. I am just flabbergasted. I love how you always find these stories for me where it's just aggravating. Aggravating. And when you think about it, 1944, I believe that's the year you said. I've, my brain's weird with numbers today. But that's still less than 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, like, people talk as if, like, oh... This kind of stuff happened so far in the past. It's like, no, there's people alive today who were a part of these types of cruelty and injustices and probably have some level of responsibility for these other shitty things that have happened. Like, this isn't that far in the past. Like, if you think about it, George's siblings are still alive today. Like, he
1: would probably still be alive today... If he had been wrongfully convicted of this crime... At 14 years old. For
0: murdering two girls in these really horrific ways where he just simply could not even have the muscles to even pull that off. And apparently everybody thought that it was totally fine to be doing this.
1: But if you think about it, it makes total sense that a prominent family who ran the mill in town and owned a bunch of land would have the ability to potentially point the blame away from their son and make sure the fall went on to some young kid who was discriminated against for his race. And that's the other part that pisses me the fuck off about this case is Frankie, who is the um, niece of Mary, who died. She's like, There was this whole article she did with one of the local papers in South Carolina where she was like, it was never about race. He's totally guilty. And I'm like, your husband's friend was the arresting officer. And he's like, oh yeah, he was totally guilty. Like, had nothing to do with race. But like, I'm sorry, you lived in a segregated town. How can you not acknowledge that race was definitely a factor?
0: Oh, absolutely. Like, I think, too, like, just from these types of stories that you've shared with me, there's always, like, some sort of weird, like, mental... I don't know if it's just that people mentally distance themselves from, like, where their privilege sits. But, like, in these types of towns where, like, people of color were literally on a different social scale than everybody else, and, like, these types of crimes happen, and they're like, it's not about race, it's like... Okay, but you might be saying that because you have conditioned yourself to believe that that wouldn't be the problem. Look around you.
1: Like, look at the fact that his lawyer didn't even do the basic things for him and essentially just let a jury sign convict off him within confession. 10 minutes.
0: Literally. Yeah. And, like, here's my thing, too. So, I know that we're probably never going to have this answer, but, like... Did anybody ever say at any point why on earth the blame fell on a random, like, colored 14-year-old? Like, he didn't- he wasn't even anywhere near the place at the time. Like, there's just so many unconvincing things about this whole thing.
1: Well, like, okay. So, these are my thoughts about that. So, I think the first thing that was against him was the fact that him and his sisters saw- the two girls on the day and George was honest with them about seeing them during the search and was there to help. The second thing is that, um, George's mom worked for the Burke family who owned the mill and everything. And they tried to have sex with her and she said no. So they had a vendetta against the family already Um, and third was because they asked some random old man who they thought was mean in the community. And one guy said, George, and because when the officer went to George's house, they were talking about the murders. So therefore, if they're talking about it, they must be guilty, right?
0: Mm, yes. And because after hours
1: and hours of interrogating this child, he confesses,
0: then they're like, okay, case closed. He's guilty. Yeah, and then that's the thing, too. It's like, like, 14 is so obviously still a child, like, a little person. And it's like, okay, so you're gonna take the words of some random kid as fact? Like... What?
1: Like what Especially are we when doing? there's no other evidence and he physically could not commit the crime? Like that's the part that gets me is he was ninety-five pounds, five one. He's a small kid. Mm-hmm. There's no physical way he could have committed the crime with how brutal it was. Her back of her head was nothing more than a crumpled pile of bones is what they said
0: like do people have no concept on how difficult that would be like your bones are not meant to be easy to break at all most people lack the force to even break any bones on another person like that is not exactly a common skill for people to have without some sort of assistance whether that be a weapon of some kind or a second person or What have you. So to even, like, think in your head and be like, yeah, this 14-year-old just came on by and somehow got away with, like, committing this much physical damage to two girls. It's like, Kate, like, you, like, it's not just enough force for one person. You need to have enough force for two people. You know what I mean? That's the
1: thing, is like... He's a small kid. Even if he did do it to one of them, how is he holding that other one there and they can't escape while he's murdering the one? And there was no signs of force. So how the fuck did he do that without there being any struggle? Unless he was strong
0: enough to literally just hold them or trap them in a place. But you see, this is like going back to what you said earlier, where... Obviously, nobody would want to talk about any of these things because they'd be worried about pissing off the wrong kind of people. So nobody or people who actually thought about it probably didn't believe that he did it. But they probably did also know that there was somebody else in the community that was looking to protect who the actual person was. And they didn't want to get on their bad side, especially in a smaller town, which, as sickening as that is, uh, does seem to be the case for a lot of this kinds of stuff. And it makes me fucking grouchy because it's like, again... (laughs) How can you not acknowledge that you have some kind of advan- ad- like advantage over other people and then this types of shit happens, right? It makes me so unbelievably mad. And the fact that it took
1: 10 minutes to decide he was guilty and 70 years to exonerate him is literally just fucking bullshit. Uh,
0: absolutely. And also, uh, just because I know we could rant about this forever, this is my last plug-in, uh, his family are already so much better than I am. Because I would not happily be accepting an apology about a institution that is designed to, like I said earlier, provide justice for people. Murdering my 14 year old brother, I would definitely not be happily accepting an apology. I'd be like, oh wow, if only you'd done your job in the fucking first place. I know. It's
1: it's insane how
0: prejudice plays into the justice system so much
1: how how wrong this whole case is and how how unjust and how many levels of people had to fail this
0: kid oh absolutely it to get to that point absolutely it's a failure on many many fronts and i really hope that every single one of those people involved are guilty still to this day, and I do hope that they are suffering because that is a awful thing to do to another person. Literally, the worst thing you could do to another person. in well, My that's mind. Like, what good does an apology do? Okay, so that's the thing. Is like, yes, it is appreciative of his memory to exonerate him. He's not here anymore. You already you tied that up. It's fun. It's finished. Like, what does an apology do for his memory? I mean, it's good to exonerate him because he wasn't guilty
1: and he doesn't deserve. That, like, stamp on his record, and I think, like, that's important for his
0: family. Oh, absolutely. Like, for his memory, that definitely means a lot. But, like, when you think of it realistically, though, it's like, that's still 70 years of bullshit. You know, most people who would have known him are probably already dead. It's 70 years too late, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. But yes, that was my last thing, because, like I said, I feel like we could definitely rant about this for a million years. But is there anything else that you want to add?
1: nope that's all for our story today it was a sad one it made me upset
0: (laughs) It, it made me mad for sure i feel like all of our stories today have been all over the place but that it's just how it be sometimes but if you guys liked today's episode uh you can follow us on our social media which is at real crime on facebook twitter instagram and tiktok if you want updates for the show Otherwise, if you'd like to submit a story of your own, we are wheelofcrime at gmail.com if you'd like to send us an email. Um, we are also available on Patreon if you'd like to donate to the show. That is wheelofcrime uh, at patreon. Um, and we also have a website if you'd like to check us out on that, uh, which is www.wheelofcrime.com. And lastly, uh, we would really appreciate it if you left us some reviews. Um, you know, uh, we've been doing this since 2018. Uh, would <laughs> I would appreciate some feedback to some degree. Ways that we can improve the show. What you like, what you don't like. Uh, all years. Love you guys. Um, and... <laughs> yes. I think that's about it.
1: That's it. That's all. We will see you next week for a hopefully less infuriating episode. I would
0: certainly say so.
1: Okay, bye. Bye.